Welcome to the Laity Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations about Christian spirituality, discovery, and practice. Thanks for joining in. I'm really wanting to ask, in the kind of world we live in, where evil and injustice and vicious people regularly do awful things, in that kind of world, what does Jesus want his followers to do with regard to the big question of killing? Hello, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether it's your first time or your 20th time on the show. Super excited to share this conversation we just had with Dr. Ron Sider. Ron just put out his newest book, If Jesus is Lord, Loving Enemies in an Age of Violence. And this conversation was great. I remember being introduced to Ron through his seminal work, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Someone handed me that book when I was 17, and it totally changed my way of thinking about the church's role in addressing global poverty. And here we're taking on another subject, uh, the subject of violence and Christian peacemaking, which of course is no less controversial. And for those of you who don't know, Ron is the founder and president emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action. He's a recently retired but distinguished professor of theology, ministry, and public policy at Palmer Theological Seminary at Eastern University in my hometown of Philadelphia. And of course, he's an author of more than 30 books, including The Early Church on Killing, Just Politics, and The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Ron, we'd love to have you maybe just introduce yourself briefly to to our audience, which we talked a little bit about um, before hitting record here. But curious, just kind of how, how you describe yourself. Yeah, I'm a farm boy from uh, Ontario, Canada, who um, was blessed with uh, a great education. Um, uh, six years at Yale um, changed my life in important ways. Uh, I um, uh, Grew up in um, an evangelical and a Baptist uh, uh, family and tradition, and uh, struggled in university with whether or not a thinker in the modern world could really believe in historic Christianity, mm. and um, examined the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, and concluded that as an historian, uh, it looks like it really happened. And, uh, and then I felt uh, called to become engaged as an evangelical in. Uh, urging the uh, Christian community generally and evangelicals in particular to become more engaged with questions of economic justice and racial justice and peacemaking and the dignity and equality of women. Uh, I called for a completely pro-life agenda and was president or executive director, the titles changed, of Evangelicals for Social Action for 40 years. Uh, I'm now retired from that too. So um, I'm committed to Jesus. I believe the Bible's our final authority for faith and practice, and uh, my deepest passion is to uh, truly live like Jesus. Ron, I have to ask you right off the bat, and this is unscripted. You're obviously a, such an influential figure and thinker for many of us. Who who really influenced, if you were to highlight a few people, thinkers, authors, professors, uh, who really influenced your journey of, of faith significantly? 
Yeah. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery is probably not uh, known uh, by many people today, was my professor in my last two years of of college, um, historian, helped me with the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. John Stott um, became a friend and someone that I deeply admired. Uh, I um, uh, was um, influenced by uh, George Ladd and his writing on the uh, Gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, that was important in my thinking. C.S. Lewis is certainly a, a favorite author. His book, Miracles, uh, is one of my favorite um, books. So that would be a few. Yeah. What What were the, when you were in college, you, you mentioned a few times the the evidence for the resurrection. When you were in college, what were sort of the burning questions of your faith? Well, I think that anybody who's alert in the modern world, um, who understands the enormous success of, of scientific investigation, uh, understands the way that um, science has explained more and more things, many things that uh, medieval people used to explain as miraculous signs are, are now given perfectly clear uh, um, scientific explanations. Uh, and I think um, if one's awake in the modern world, you have to ask, uh, um, is there any intellectual basis for thinking that anything exists beyond what the physicist mm-hmm. and the chemist describe? In other words, is is naturalism, philosophical naturalism, that um, this whole universe is just the result of, of um, blind materialistic process, random mutations, and so on? Uh, and I struggled with that question. Um, I... Uh, came to the conclusion that the best intellectual uh, answer is that the historical evidence is is that Jesus really was alive on the third day. If that happened, the best explanation for that is that a God exists who can do that sort of thing. Hmm. And so um, uh, I think there's a, a very strong basis for an honest intellectual who really understands the modern world to embrace historic Christianity. My um, um, my doctoral advisor at Yale was uh, Jaroslav Pelikan. He's one of the most brilliant, uh, successful uh, uh, scholars of church history in the second half of the 20th century. Wow. Uh, wrote many, many books and uh, uh, just had all the honors that any scholar could have. Uh, but um, uh, after he died... The Yale History Department, uh, you know, it does a four-page uh, bulletin every once in a while, and the last page was devoted entirely to Dr. Pelican, and it uh, went on and on and on about all of his honors and publications. And then, and you have to remember that the Yale History Department is a very secular place. Uh, the last couple lines of that uh, long statement on Dr. Pelican said, as Dr. Pelican was dying of cancer, he came up with the last of his many aphorisms, quote, if Jesus is not risen, nothing else matters. If Jesus is risen, nothing else matters. Mm. He meant that if Jesus uh, is not risen, if Bertrand Russell is right, uh, uh, we die, we rot, disappear forever. That's uh, all that um, exists in the world is what uh, the materialist describes. Uh, If that's true, then all my accomplishments don't really matter. 
And if Jesus did rise from the dead, and if I will live forever with him, then my accomplishments, uh, yeah, they're, they're fine, but ultimately they're not as important as living forever with the Lord. And as I, uh, I read that, um, that final statement from one of the most brilliant uh, scholars uh, of, my, of uh, that generation, mm. I almost wept. It's simply mm. the case that some of our most brilliant scholars, some of our most brilliant philosophers, some of our most brilliant uh, physicists are deeply committed Christians who believe in historic Christianity. Wow. Mm. Ron, how did you, you know, you're, you're so known for your you know, the social action work, justice work, um, you know, in terms of writing. So, I mean, of course, Rich Christians in, in an Age of Con- Hunger, which we've mentioned, which I think you originally put out in, in the late 70s and has since, you know, put out many other editions. I remember reading um, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience when I was in high yep. school. Uh, and the subtitle of that is just, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? Uh, and it, it's not funny. I'm just laughing because I'm like, man, these are such... And now you're writing about nonviolence. I mean which you, of course, have before. How have you, I guess, where does that, where does the heart for sort of the core, you know, peculiar people set apart living this unique kingdom way? Um, of course, that's a, you know, that's just a part of the gospel. But for you in particular, where did that sort of burden, interest, and, you know, passion c- come from um, and, and I'm just curious kind of what led you down that path and what's led you to sustain, you know, that level of, of focus over, you know, years and years. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, the simple answer is that um, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is true God and true man. The historical evidence is that he rose from the dead. Um, uh, I believe that, uh, you know, he is truly the son of God. And if that's who he is, then it's pretty important for people who believe that to follow him uh, and to live the way he called us to live. Uh, and so um, uh, somebody asked me what I want on my tombstone. I said, I think I'd like my tombstone to say he tried to live like Jesus. Uh, that, that's been the passion mm. of my life. And it's Jesus in the context of the scriptures. I think that the uh, Bible is God's um, uh, special revelation and that what it tells us about um, faith and practice is um, God's word to us, and we're called to live that way. So it's been that central passion that has shaped all of my life. Um, you know, I discovered that um, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible about God's special concern for the poor. Uh, and uh, you're simply not following Jesus, and you're not uh, following the Bible uh, if you don't make economic justice one of your important uh, concerns. Uh, all through my life, I've tried to maintain what I call biblical balance. I've had evangelical friends um, over the course of my life who uh, uh, were very concerned with justice, but they forgot about evangelism, and they mm-hmm. neglected to invite people to accept Christ. And uh, I um, was um, you know, very disappointed with that. I, I felt that uh, we need to be committed to the whole Jesus. And he tells us at the end, as he was leaving his disciples, according to Matthew, uh, that um, he calls us to uh, go into all the world and make disciples, um, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I command you. So uh, that's been my passion. And I've tried to maintain what I call a biblical balance, prayer and action, uh, inward journey and outward journey, uh, 
evangelism and social action, um, converting people to Christ, and changing structures in society that are unfair. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. So, Ron, your, your latest book, If Jesus is Lord, Loving Our Enemies in an Age of, of Violence. That's what we're wanting to dive in uh, with you today. And I want to start with, I mean, your subtitle mentions this age of violence. What are you What are you seeing that you're describing as an age of violence? And can you give a little bit of context on sort of where that comes from in our in our society? Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which we've always lived uh, in in violent times. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, just in Western history, Christians have been killing Christians for uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, uh, wars uh, have been part of human history from as far back as we have any historical records. So that in, in one sense, um, uh, that's not different. It's not different today from what it has been. Uh, but it's simply the case that, uh, you know, there's a lot of violence uh, around, uh, whether you're talking about gun violence in the U.S. or, uh, uh, you know, terrible tragedies in, in Syria or Nigeria, um, uh, danger of um, nuclear uh, exchange, a nuclear holocaust uh, with the kind of conflict we have with Russia, North Korea, and so on. So um, there's just a great deal of violence in the world. And most people think that the way to um, stop evil persons, and it's perfectly clear that there's a lot of evil around, you know, ISIS Mm -hmm. exists, uh, Stalin's and Hitler's um, um, and um, so on, have stalked through human history doing awful things. Uh, And the conclusion of many people is that uh, the only way to um, stop violence is to kill. And my question is, is that what Jesus said? Is that what Jesus told his disciples to do? If Jesus is truly true God, as well as true man, um, if Jesus said that the messianic kingdom that the Jews were expecting was actually breaking into history in his person and work, if Jesus intended that his teaching about how his disciples should live was God's way for people who join that new kingdom to live, mm-hmm. uh, and if Jesus um, died on the cross so that we could be forgiven when we fail to obey God, but that if he rose from the dead to demonstrate that, in fact, he was the Messiah, that he was uh, the Son of God, uh, and that the Messianic kingdom is truly broken in, if that's true, and it seems to me that's the very center of Christian faith, uh, then it seems to me we must take very seriously Jesus' command to love our enemies. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned this age of violence, and and I'm one of the things that kind of struck me is it's like it's my my understanding from what I've seen and read is that actually overall, if you just count the numbers, uh, you know, murders, things like like generally things are the world is is becoming safer in terms of there are there are fewer murders, but then there's actually 
there, with the, these mass shootings, there is there are other things that are on the rise. So what is it? What is it in particularly American society that 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 has set things up so that we can we can we, we can still be living in this age that feels like it is it it is so violent. Even 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 like there's actually an increase as actually the numbers seem to sort of be to be declining a little bit. Yeah, I didn't mean that subtitle to be a commentary on this particular moment. Um, uh, in a way, it was intended as an echo of rich Christians in an age of uh, hunger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that all of human history has been an age of violence. And I'm, I'm talking in more general terms, not trying to come in on this particular moment in U.S. history or or global history. I'm really wanting to ask, um, in the kind of world we live in, where evil and injustice and vicious people regularly do awful things, in that kind of world, what does Jesus want his followers to do with regard to the big question of right. killing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I love it. I mean, I it actually it, it resonated with me because it you know I, regardless of whatever's happening with numbers, it it does feel like uh, there's more more worship of Mars now for some reason. You know, if you know what I mean. Like there's it's more it's it's louder. There's more of this kind of I don't know machismo, uh, lots of fear and and uh, yeah, absolutely retaliation. You know. Look back over history. Um, some some things get better, some things get worse. Um, yeah. You know, we used to solve disputes between gentlemen um, by um, um, what do you call it? Um, I forget the right word now. You know, men would uh, each have pistols and they would walk. A- oh yeah, but dueling, dueling, uh, and we don't do it now. We do it in the courts. Um, uh, yep. There are a whole variety of ways that. Um, in a free democratic society, we've made progress. I'm grateful for that. Um, we've also lost ground, I think, in 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 some ways uh, on some things. So we live in a world where violence has been the way to solve problems. Yeah, and is that what Jesus wants? So, so yeah, Ron, when you talk about so you begin, to, you know, you set this, you started to set the stage for Jesus in particular. I love how the beginning of the book you break down first century context for us in terms My of, favorite part of the book. Yeah. It's super it. helpful because you're, you're giving us such a breadth of Jesus's world, particularly as it, as it pertained to Messiah figures, Jewish expect, Jewish expectations of Messiah. Um, there's a lot we could unpack here, but maybe in a succinct way, and I can ask some specific questions for our audience. Can you give us a little bit of that that context? I think it's it's helpful to contrast sort of the the understanding of the day in terms of what this Messiah would come to to do and become versus what we actually see in Jesus. Yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial if we're going to understand uh, Jesus at all. Uh, Josephus, the Romanist, the Jewish historian who writes about the first century, um, is probably our best source of Jewish thinking um, uh, of this time, uh, apart from the New Testament. And Josephus makes it very clear, uh, we know this from Josephus, but other things too, that the Jews in Jesus' day, you know, in the hundred years around the time of Jesus, were 
many, many of them were expecting a military messiah who would come and overthrow the Romans in a military victory uh, and establish Jerusalem as the center of the world. Uh, that was very widespread. And Josephus talks mm. about uh, a whole bunch of Jewish um, rebels, uh, violent revolutionaries, who called on the Jewish people to rebel against Rome. And regularly, the Roman army was pretty <laughs> efficient <laughs> and powerful, and they would regularly uh, conquer those rebels. Uh, uh, they crucified um, many, many rebels uh, in the time around before and after the time of Jesus. Uh, and it was always the case that if somebody claimed to be the Messiah and then got killed by the Romans, instead of defeating the Romans, which is what the Messiah was supposed to do, then that was absolute proof that he wasn't the Messiah. Right. So that's the context. Jesus comes along, mm. comes to a people who deeply long for this messianic figure to come, uh, uh, someone from the tribe of David, uh, from the lineage of David, uh, and who would lead the nation in conquering the Romans in a military victory. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, but my messianic kingdom is different, and my strategy is different. Uh, he says, um, uh, you're supposed to love your enemies, not kill them. He says, uh, you know, when he, the clearest messianic claim is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem toward the end of his life on a donkey, uh, not a military uh, um, war horse. Uh, and uh, it's clear, even at the cross, when they crucify him, that he forgives his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he practiced what he said in terms of loving enemies. So Jesus did claim to be the Messiah. Um, in fact, some scholars want to say that Jesus really didn't claim to be the Messiah. Uh, that makes no sense at all. You know, if Jesus himself didn't claim to be the Messiah— uh, then when his disciples started going throughout the Roman Empire uh, telling people to accept Jesus, uh, the last thing they would have said was that Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah because the one thing that the Roman judicial system knew about Jesus was that he was crucified precisely because he claimed to be the Messiah. So Jesus himself must have claimed mm -hmm. to be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And the only reason the disciples believed that he was after the crucifixion was the resurrection. Because as I said, um, N.T. Wright makes his point uh, very clearly, there's not a single instance in this time period where somebody claimed to be Messiah and then was crucified or killed by the Romans. And then his disciples continued to believe in him after he was crucified. Not a single instance. On uh, Saturday morning, uh, the disciples knew that Jesus was a fraud. They knew that he was a failure. Uh, and it's only that they, because they met the risen Jesus that they were able to say, ah, oh, yes, he is the Messiah. In fact, he's more than that, uh, my Lord and my God. So the resurrection um, is crucial. But it's it's that historical context, the Jewish understanding, expectation for a military Messiah to overthrow the Romans. Jesus claims to be the Messiah, but he has a whole different approach to how you are the Messiah. He teaches his disciples 
um, about how they should live in this new messianic kingdom that's breaking into history uh, in his work uh, and activity. Um, and then he dies for our sins and then rises from the dead to prove that's who he is. And then these disciples, uh, filled with the Spirit, go all over the Roman Empire um, telling people to believe in this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Mm. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. So the core, and you, uh, for our listeners, Ron outlines in the book. I mean, so does does the exegesis. I mean, really works through a lot of these passages. You know, some of the ones just to highlight, of course, is in the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most straightforward in terms of Jesus's language around turning the other cheek, around carrying, you know, the pack the extra mile, around not resisting an evil person. I want to talk in a moment about some of the translations things there because I think that's interesting. Um, but you know, and of course, we talked about the triumphal entry, the cross, um, and, and, you know, of course, we don't see evidence of Jesus being violent. Of course, there's the temple episode, which you also outline and some of the, the, the arguments there. Um, but at the core, I actually, I don't, I don't want to get too in the weeds here. I, I did think it found, find it really interesting when you talk about, you know, this passage that, that the NIV translates in Matthew 5 of, you know, do not resist an evil person. And I think this is kind of a theme throughout your book, too a lot of times when people think, well, nonviolence or, you know, pacifism, and we can talk about this a bit, um, it seems very flaky. Um, it seems very, it just, just passive. It seems like you're, you're just going to take a back seat and you're unwilling to take any sort, sort of responsibility or to you know, actually step up and step into what could be a really messy situation. Um, personally or in the world and you you make really clear that you don't think that's that's what Jesus is saying at all that there's actually a difference between not resisting and not resisting violently can can you draw out that distinction a bit yeah but let me let me first of all say that uh, I think uh, perhaps the strongest argument against um, a pacifist or a nonviolent position is that you fail to defend your neighbor who's being attacked and abused and killed by mm -hmm. a person. C.S. Lewis says famously that he can't imagine that um, if somebody was trying to push him aside to go and um, uh, kill his neighbor, that Jesus would just let him um, do that. Um, uh, I agree, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis. I, I certainly agree. Mm -hmm. um, but so many people seem to think that we only have two options. One is to do nothing or to kill. Uh, and that's simply not the case. There is always a third option. And that third option is to act nonviolently to um, resist evil. Uh, and before I wrote um, this book on the biblical stuff about Jesus and killing, I, I did the book Nonviolent Action, uh, where I talked about um, 10 or more of the most famous instances uh, in the 20th century, especially the last uh, 50 years, uh, of very successful nonviolent campaigns. Of course, we know Gandhi uh, defeating the British Empire in India. We know Martin Luther King. Uh, but uh, a nonviolent campaign overthrew the communist dictators in East Germany uh, and uh, in Poland. Uh, a women's nonviolent movement uh, in Liberia defeated uh, the vicious dictator uh, when a million people came out into the streets um, uh, after the dictator Marcos uh, uh, tried to steal another election um, 
in the 80s in the Philippines, uh, uh, they uh, dared the tanks to fire on them, and uh, they overthrew a dictator nonviolently. So there's just massive evidence that nonviolence again and again works. In fact, a scholar, mm-hmm. a couple scholars did a book published by Columbia University Press um, a couple years ago, and they study uh, all of the major violent and nonviolent campaigns uh, for justice and freedom in the last hundred plus years. And they discovered that the nonviolent campaigns were a lot more likely to succeed than the violent campaigns. And the nonviolent campaigns were far more likely to produce a democratic society after the overthrow of dictators. So Mm. it's simply unfair to the historical record to say that we only have two options, kill or, or do nothing. We can always intervene nonviolently, and the historical record demonstrates that again and again uh, it works. But that's still yeah. the open question uh, that you were getting to, and that is, did Jesus mean to say, um, uh, it's translated, uh, uh, resist, don't resist evil. Did he mean to say, uh, do nothing, uh, just be passive? Uh, my first comment is, if that's what he meant to say there, then Jesus contradicted himself all over the place. You know, he attacked the Pharisees in vigorous ways uh, um, in terms of denouncing their uh, evil. In uh, Matthew 18, he talks about church discipline, and he tells uh, Christians to uh, resist, if you will, and uh, and deal with uh, evil. Uh, at his trial, um, one of the... Um, People there slapped him on the cheek. Uh, and instead of turning the other cheek there, Jesus said, um, why did you do that? Uh, if, I did, if I did something wrong, uh, you know, tell me. Uh, if not, uh, you, know, you shouldn't uh, slap me on the cheek. Um, so Jesus, uh, and, and certainly uh, in the case of uh, the money changers in the temple, he didn't kill anybody. Uh, it's not even uh, likely that he used the whip on the people, but he certainly challenged evil. And... In fact, if you look carefully at the Greek word, which the NIV translates as uh, uh, do not uh, resist evil, uh, it really means um, don't resist violently. Uh, The same word or or, or a close, um, similar use of the word uh, appears in the Old Testament, and more than half of the time, it means resist violently as in war. Josephus uses the word, the first century Jewish historian, uh, a whole bunch of times, and almost all the time, uh, he's referring to a violent uh, resistance to evil. So when Jesus um, um, says, don't resist evil, he means don't resist violently. Right. Uh, Both the careful uh, examination of what that Greek word means and how it's used, and also Jesus' own example where he again and again resisted evil, but did it in a way that uh, uh, loved enemies. Uh, both of those things show that uh, to make that um, statement of Jesus sound like it's a purely passive kind of approach that he's recommending is simply mistaken. Now, it's right. true that uh, um, some scholars, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, said that what Jesus was advocating was pure passivity. Uh, 
unfortunately, Niebuhr went on to say, that's what Jesus said, but it doesn't work in our world, so we have to ignore Jesus. Uh, I think uh, for somebody who believes that Jesus is true God, that's mm -hmm. simply not acceptable. Right. There are... So we could, you know, go through all these different passages and, and arguments, and I think you do a fantastic job in the book of being, um, you know, comprehensive. I, even as you're talking, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, and we're going to talk about some of the, you know, kind of arguments against this. But for me, this issue seems like such an – is perceived, at least in my experience and conversations I've had in my life um, – as like an, an optional add-on, like an, an an optional sort of nice to have, like or or like an opinion matter, right? Like so, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we talk about lust or um, anger um, or other you know other forms of you know hatred and generosity and other things that we we see there, like th these are pretty crystal clear things. I think most people raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I probably fall short in this area, but it's Jesus's teaching and, um, you know, we need to follow him as Lord. But when it comes to violence or, or, or killing in particular, and maybe it's the I'm kind of ran, ranting here, but is it, it, maybe it's sort of our affinity or the sort of historical evangelical connection to, um, you know, either the moral majority or even some conservative politics and all the kind of war that, that comes along with that. Why is it, where does this idea that like, this is kind of just an optional, take it or leave it, we're going to disagree and that's okay thing come from? Why, why is this particular issue of violence? And maybe you disagree, I doubt it. But why does this seem like such a, you know, a different thing in terms of how so many Christians perceive it and interpret it? from Jesus, almost like an optional stand, you know, an optional add-on. Well, I mean, it's simply the fact that from the fourth century on, um, after the time of Constantine, um, the majority um, official Christian view is the just war tradition, which says that under certain circumstances, um, it's right for Christians to kill to um, oppose evil people and preserve peace. It's interesting, uh, and the other book I, I did before I got to this one, uh, there were two books I wanted to do before I wrote this book on Jesus uh, and killing, and that was I wanted to know what the early church in the first um, 300 years after Jesus, after the New Testament, said. And so I nobody had collected everything that we have uh, in that time period up until the time of Constantine. In 313, Constantine made um, Christianity, um, it was legal to be a Christian af after that. Um, but I examined and brought together in one book, The Early Church and Killing is the title, uh, everything that exists now that relates to killing, whether abortion, capital punishment, or war. And Every time the early Christian writers wow. talk about killing, whether abortion, capital punishment, war, infanticide, they always say that Christians don't do that, mm. and Christians should not do that. There's not a single wow. example of Christian writers up until the time of Constantine, after 313, who say that it's legitimate for Christians to kill. And they 
with some regularity, uh, they quote um, Matthew 5 uh, and um, Jesus' uh, statement about loving our enemies. So Christians for the first um, 200 plus years after the time of the New Testament uh, believed that Jesus really meant to tell his disciples that they never should kill, whether in war or capital punishment uh, or abortion. Uh, since that time, and, you know, I, I understand it. Uh, I said earlier that vicious people rampage through history. I understand why good people feel that the only way to stop them is to kill them. Um, and the just war tradition, at its best, uh, has uh, said that if these careful criteria are met, uh, the purpose must be uh, just intent and a just peace and not revenge um, must be declared by a legitimate authority um, and so on. Uh, if those criteria are met, then uh, war is legitimate. Um, I get it, but it seems to me that's not what Jesus said. Right. Uh, and if Jesus is, uh, is Lord, uh, then we have to obey them. So, Ron, one of the things you, you, you bring up in this sort of section of the book um, is, is the, the, the lack of examples of Christians in a nation uh, that has decided to go to war, taking up arms, deciding that it is, in fact, a legitimate war, except they're taking up arms against their country because their own country is the one at fault. You point out that that just doesn't happen, that inevitably Christians end up supporting just their own country's wars. Why is that? If there ever was an example of a just war, um, it surely would be the Second World War, uh, the resistance to Hitler and Nazism and that evil, evil uh, uh, set of actions which destroyed um, uh, millions of, of Jews as well as lots of other people. Um, but in fact, um, German Catholics and German Protestants uh, with very few exceptions, simply embraced, uh, least tolerated, and often enthusiastically joined in um, supporting Hitler. So if you can't even apply the just war criteria, uh, which would surely mean if your country is fighting an unjust war, then you ought to oppose your country, right. uh, not join in supporting your country, and virtually never have Christians succeeded in that kind of countercultural approach? Uh, it seems that again and again, in the emotion of a nationalistic um, spirit in a nation, people just join in what the government says we're supposed to do and uh, join in opposing and attacking our national enemy. And uh, I think that that's finally uh, um, a fundamental weakness of the just war tradition. If it can't be applied even in a as clear a case as um, as Hitler, there does seem you you talk about this difference between and in the book of, of sort of private this argument that well there's a private life that a Christian lives um, and then there's this public life or there's a you know when the standards being set for a nation uh, for a Christian functioning within a nation is fundamentally different than. A private Christian life. And so, yes, Jesus is talking about 
you know, the, these radical standards of nonviolence, which, yes, makes sense and could can be practical, albeit risky <clears throat> for the individual, but it's just not practical and it's just not realistic for, you know, at, at a corporate level. Um, obviously, you argue against that. Can you comment on that in particular? And I'm curious if that's something you hear most often, and if not, sort of what are the other sort of counter arguments that, that you have rise to the surface most, most often in conversations you're having? Yeah, the, there, there are two points at which this argument is made, namely that um, um, as a private um, person, one loves one's enemies, um, but as a public citizen or a military person or a police officer, you know, one necessarily kills. Uh, it's suggested that Jesus is only talking about the private sphere not the public sphere. The problem with that is that it doesn't fit the situation. Jesus, um, you know, talks about uh, uh, loving your enemies, and he talks about it in a context of uh, not um, fighting against Roman imperialists. In fact, you know, Jesus um, says it's been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, now an eye for an eye was the central uh, principle of Near Eastern jurisprudence. It was commanded in the Old Testament uh, to take an eye for an eye. And it was the basic core principle of Old Testament um, legal systems. Uh, and Jesus simply rejects that and says, no, uh, not an eye for an eye, but I say unto you, uh, when mm. Jesus talks about um, how you deal with a Roman soldier who had the legal right to demand that you carry his bags for a mile, but not two miles. And Jesus says, hey, take him a second mile uh, and surprise him. He's talking about precisely the issue of how you deal with Roman imperialists, uh, the basic enemy of the Jewish people. So it doesn't make any sense uh, when you look at what Jesus was doing. He, he claimed, after all, that he was the Messiah for the whole Jewish people. Uh, he wanted the whole Jewish people to live the way he taught. So this public-private distinction doesn't fit Jesus. Uh, the, um, the other way it's argued is uh, Romans 12 and Romans 13. Romans 12 says, um, you know what? Echoes of Jesus, love your enemies. Uh, yeah. uh, don't um, about to go there. do vengeance. Uh, leave it to God. Uh, and then in Romans thirteen, uh, Paul says that the uh, the state, and he uses the same two key words for vengeance and wrath. Um, uh, in Romans twelve, Paul says, "Leave it to God's wrath. God will take care of that." Um, and then in Romans thirteen, he says that the state does that sort of thing. Uh, and that's the way people argue to say Romans 12 is about the private life, Romans 13 is how we act in public life. But the problem with that is that um, Paul just told Christians in Romans 12 not to do vengeance. Uh, and now in Romans hmm. 13, he uses exactly the same words to say the state does that. But nowhere in Romans 13 does Paul say Christians are supposed to do that. He simply says the state does that. Uh, Paul does talk about things that Christians are supposed to do, namely respect the authorities and pay their taxes, uh, but he never says Christians are supposed to do what in Romans 12 
he had just said Christians should not do. Mm. Yeah, that was a good point. Um, I, I think that private public distinction just doesn't fit Jesus, and it doesn't fit um, uh, Romans 12. F.F. F. Bruce, the famous evangelical New Testament scholar, um, says that um, um, in uh, Romans 13, Paul says the state says uh, that the state does exactly what Paul said in Romans 12, Christians do not and should not do. Mm. I love that. There's, there's a lot of examples. I mean, I, I, you know, the folks here that are listening, I mean, that you, you, you really are comprehensive in the book. You go through just line by line, argument by argument, so many different uh, objective ob- objections and verses. And um, I, I wanted to kind of pick your brain on this one thing. You, you say a few times in the book that, you know, as, as Christians, we should follow Jesus and we should seek to, to imitate uh, what he does. And of course, and, and, and to be like, to be like God, but there are certain ways in which we shouldn't try to imitate God. Uh, namely the ways in which uh, God uses violence. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you mean there? Yeah, well, Romans 12 um, (laughs) says explicitly that uh, Christians are not supposed to exact vengeance. They're supposed to leave it to God, and that God does that sort of thing. Uh, I think that... um, an all-powerful, all-righteous, all-wise God is the only one who knows how to combine love and mercy, uh, I mean, love and mercy on the one hand and, and justice on the other. Um, and the New Testament, it's not just uh, in Romans 12, uh, but also elsewhere, you know, mm-hmm. says that God does that sort of thing. And uh, it's clear that at the end of history, uh, God does punish evil. So I think that um, it's right that an infinite, all-wise God uh, you know, does um, punish evil. But the New Testament clearly says that Christians are not supposed to do vengeance. We're, we're supposed to love our enemies. So, you know, People people are finite. They're not God. God mm-hmm. rightly does some things that that people uh, are not supposed to do. We're not wise enough to do it. Do you, Do you think though that 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 wisdom or that that God's righteousness? I mean, you, I, I certainly would agree that God's wiser than we are, and we can't understand all of His ways. But is is there is there a sense in which that that we sh- we should expect some reliable correspondence between like what we would see as um, as good and right and what we see God doing as being good and right. So, for example, I, I, I think that's what creates the tension when people, when, when we see, when, when we as Christians profess that God is most clearly revealed in Jesus, but then we see God in other places in the Bible um, doing things that we could never imagine Jesus doing. And so that, that, that makes it seem like, well, wait a minute, have I just misunderstood what love looks like? And if love can look like God doing those things, well, what, what does love even mean anymore? I mean, you can kind of see where it all starts to break down. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I understand. Uh, I understand the issue, and it's certainly the case that in lots and lots of ways, the Bible, um, both testaments, you know, you know, tell us that we're supposed to imitate God. 
um, in his mm-hmm. love and his justice, his caring for the poor, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there are a few explicit places, um, and I think that the, uh, the Romans 12 uh, is a clear example where the Bible says that God does some things that persons, human beings, are not supposed to do. You know, we will not um, be the judge at the final judgment. Uh, God rightly will. Um, and uh, I find that not only not problematic, but um, as uh, Miroslav Wolf says, um, you know, if um, there isn't a final reckoning and terrible evil is not dealt with, then the world is fundamentally unjust. And I think uh, the scripture tells us that God will, in fact, finally deal with evil, and it will not ultimately prevail. That's helpful. So how do you uh, how do you feel about folks? Uh, are you familiar with Thomas J. Ord? I am not. I'm sorry. He's, a, he's an open, I guess he would describe himself as kind of on the open theism spectrum. And it seems like a lot of people sort of in that camp. We, we, we had a, a series of conversations on this podcast with open, different open theists and mm-hmm. process thinkers trying to unpack what all that meant. So if folks want that background, they're welcome to go back and listen to that. But um, it seems like one of the common cards that gets played in those circles is to say that, well, you know, is, is to let the nonviolent sort of go all the way down so that it's even, even God himself is, just, is, is essentially nonviolent. And those examples of, of violence we see in the Bible are, um, those are places where we see like primitive societies uh, just engage in primitive thinking and they just misunderstood God or uh, those things, you know, the, the Canaanite conquest didn't really happen like that. It wasn't necessarily all, it may have not even really been historical. And there's a lot of questioning about that because, uh, what 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 they would say is that in Jesus they see that God is 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 essentially nonviolent. So how do you? How, I imagine you have some responses to that. Where, how do you react to that? Yeah, well, I have a whole chapter on, on the Old Testament uh, and violence. I certainly do, uh, and I find that a you know a huge a huge issue. Um, uh, my basic. Uh, answer after I've explored a variety of people who try to deal with this and I'm not satisfied with any of them uh, is to say I I um, love that I'm not sure uh, finally but I don't know how the God revealed in Jesus would kill men women and children and engage in genocide what I do know is that Jesus is our final revelation of how God wants us to live and the New Testament sets aside the Old Testament in all kinds of ways. The temple is replaced. Uh, circumcision is set aside. The Torah, the law, uh, is uh, no longer uh, playing the central role. Um, uh, Hebrews uh, says it's a new covenant, and the old covenant is set aside. So in all kinds of ways, um, the New Testament, uh, the new covenant, uh, is setting aside and fulfilling by transcending many things in the Old Testament. So what's clear to me is that Jesus gives us 
the final word on how God wants us to live. Uh, I'm not certain how to understand the Old Testament passages uh, on on violence uh, and genocide. Um, I don't see how that fits with Jesus. Uh, I think finally I won't have an adequate understanding of how to understand all of that until I talk with my Lord um, on the other side. Uh, but I'm clear yeah. what Jesus intends his disciples to do, yeah. and that's to live the way Jesus uh, taught us. Uh, and beyond that, um, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a final nice, clear answer. <laughs> I love that you just sit in the tension. I mean, that's that that's a yeah. I, I so like appreciate that. your yeah the willingness to uh, to be being okay with that. I think is helpful. You know, Ron, as we this has been great as we start to kind of land the plane here. You know, there are folks who are listening to this that will be coming from any number of cultural backgrounds, in particular Christian culture. You know, for some communities that you know where folks are you know, legally carrying weapons on them, right? I remember actually a really quick anecdote. I remember talking about nonviolence just out of college and I was at a, um, spending time with a campus ministry actually in Texas. And we had this whole conversation about this whole concept. And uh, I remember a guy coming up to me at, at, at service the next day and saying, hey, like today's like the first day I'm not like, you know, con- holding a concealed weapon, bring a concealed weapon to church. Like I, and it's changed. It, this is going to change my life effectively. Um, like there's such a culture of not only the vi- violence piece, but even sort of s- the self-preservation and, and, you know, everything that all the culture that comes with that. Um, I say all that to say, all of our listeners are going to be coming from different places. Um, for those who are sort of in the throes of, of this, in particular, this subject and, and what to do with this personally and practically. What's your encouragement? Um, we know where you stand on the issue. Kind of what what's your word often to folks that find themselves, you know, figuring out how to really wrestle with this and wrestle with Jesus in this way. Well, my um, well, first of all, a, a comment about um, uh, Saint Augustine. Um, you know the. Uh, late 4th, early 5th century, he was the, one of the first major Christians to basically move toward a just war stance. And Augustine said, we must start with Jesus teaching to love our enemies. And Augustine said that um, it's simply wrong to kill to protect oneself. Uh, he did think it was legitimate for people to join the army to kill, to defend, you know, uh, peace and justice in the world. But he said it was wrong uh, to kill, um, to defend oneself. Just an interesting historical uh, point. Mm-hmm. But my my basic question, the most important question of the whole book, is is simply this: If you understand Jesus' context. And what he said and did in that context, um, is it not very likely that he meant to tell his disciples that they should never kill? And the early church for 300 years thought that. Um, It seems to me that anybody who does think that one should kill to protect oneself or the nation um, 
must wrestle with Jesus and explain why that's consistent with what Jesus taught. So my plea to everybody is, if you think Jesus is Lord, then please explain what he meant by loving your enemies. And live that way. That's great. And furthermore, uh, wow. a nonviolent approach of direct action, intervening uh, nonviolently, works again and again. So it's not just a crazy kind of, um, of um, hiding your head in the sand. Uh, there's lots of historical evidence that an act of nonviolence really mm -hmm. works. Man, that's encouraging. I, I would encourage everyone, all our listeners, to to get the book and and certainly read it. We just scratched the the very surface, and I think we you know hit a couple of a number of compelling things here that you know take quite a while to unpack. And obviously, Ron, we thank you for dedicating so much of your life and work, honestly, to uh, to doing just that and giving us these resources. So thank you. Thank you. Um, any other, you know, obviously we'd encourage folks to read this book, Ron, you mentioned some of your other work, which we'll, we'll link folks to anyone else or any place else in terms of resources that you would point listeners to who are, who are diving into this. You know, in terms of my own uh, writing, uh, the rich Christians in an age of hunger for global poverty, um, my just politics, uh, for how I think about the Christian engagement with politics an earlier book, Completely Pro-Life, uh, where I try to say that if um, you're pro-life, then uh, you should be not opposed just to abort, not just opposed to abortion, but uh, killing when uh, it's because of hunger and starvation or racism or cigarette smoking and so on. Um, those would be a few of my own things. Um, I was the head of Evangelicals for Social Action for uh, 40 years. I'm now President Emeritus and uh, Evangelicals for Social Action has a website and uh, works on this sort of thing all the time. Um, I actually have a blog, uh, ronsiderblog.substack.com. Uh, uh, would love to have people join me uh, in that free blog. Great. No, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll, point, we'll point folks there without a doubt. Uh, that's that's fine for one, uh, one session. Good to get to know you guys. <laughs> yes, thank you. Rod, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Looking forward to sharing the next one with you.